Hello, and welcome to the Spring Podcast, where socialist ideas take action. I am your host, Laura Conrad. The Spring Podcast is recorded from Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people, and is produced by the Spring Socialist Network. Welcome, everyone. Today we have two special guests with us, Chloe C. and Siegfried Hemming. Chloe is a climate justice activist at Fridays for Future Toronto, where she focuses on the intersections between the many types of injustices and fights for system change. She is also an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto studying neuroscience and health policy. Welcome, Chloe. Hi, thank you for having me. And Siegfried is a climate justice activist, musician, artist, and vegan activist. He currently organizes Fridays for Future Toronto and Climate Strike Canada. Welcome, Siegfried. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you both for joining us today. I want to start by asking you both how you got involved with climate justice and why you think it's an urgent issue of our time. So for me personally, I started in the climate justice movement not really even knowing what climate justice meant. I knew about climate activism and um, I'd seen, you know, all the uh, activists on TV and all the news articles about them, but I didn't put that together with the justice aspect, so the social justice aspect of climate justice. Um, And I had experienced a lot of climate anxiety throughout high school, just, you know, seeing all these, like, it felt like doomsday reports and feeling really down about where our our world was going. Um, And then it all kind of came to a head last year after the killing of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. I started wanting to reach out to everywhere I could to try to get involved and see what I could do to help with social justice causes. So I found Fridays for Future Toronto, and I've been in the climate movement ever since. Um, for me, personally, I, uh, I've been organizing with Fridays for Future Toronto for about two years now, although prior to that I was um, an avid attendee of climate-related demonstrations, um, as well as like related justice issues like Black Lives Matter, like Chloe mentioned. Um, I became involved in environmentalism uh, specifically, though, about four years ago when I went vegan. I um, had learned about veganism through the internet and during educating myself on the, uh, the agriculture system, it became clear to me how interlinked the climate crisis and justice issues are. So I did a deep dive on climate change, the impacts of dairy, uh, deforestation, overfishing, plastic pollution, water crisis, and indigenous issues. And um, the more I learned, the more I became enraged with the fact that all of this horrible activity had been happening right under my nose and that I had been directly contributing to it. So from there, I turned, uh, I basically turned my anger into action and made several lifestyle changes and joined the climate justice movement and became an advocate for, um, for climate justice. And I believe that climate justice is the issue of our time because it is quite literally the deciding factor in whether any time past the present uh, will be livable. And climate change is the issue of our time because our time's issue is climate change. You both have been involved with organizing climate strikes in Toronto. Can you tell us about how the idea of strikes emerged and what the demands of striking are? 
Yeah, strikes are a great way of disrupting the status quo and really getting the attention of leaders and key decision makers. And I'm sure we all here know that we live in a very capitalism-dominated society. So when anytime we disrupt the workday, um, we have workers not showing up, we have students not going to class to get educated to eventually become workers themselves, that causes a lot of um, fear, I guess, uh, among our leaders. And it makes them really pay attention to our demands. Uh, as Fridays for Future Toronto, we do engage in strikes rather than uh, walkouts. We see strikes as more of a collective action that everyone, you know, bands together in solidarity to fight for a cause rather than walkouts, which are more like individual action based. Um, so, yeah, we all work together to cancel the day with our classmates, our colleagues, and it's much more impactful when we do it all together. Um, in terms of where it comes from, of course, labor groups have been using strikes for decades, uh, but we're students. We spend most of our time in school. So when we strike, we do school strikes. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of demands, every strike we always demand for climate justice, but the specifics of those demands kind of vary based on what's going on in the world at the time. So our most recent strike was actually last September, and we had some demands for each level of government. And some of them were uh, full implementation of the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We wanted to add climate justice to the Ontario curriculum. We wanted no new fossil fuel projects and subsidies, an end to encampment evictions in the city, free public transit for all, and a ton of other demands. Yeah, um, large-scale global strikes really only happen when the situation is dire, and um, people are literally forced into the streets. If the politicians continue not to listen uh, while people's lives are being lost and wrecked, uh, what else can we do but scream our demands in the streets in the hopes that they will begin to value lives over money? Um, and like Chloe said, our, our demands often uh, center around the ending of fossil fuel and fossil fuel subsidies, um, indigenous sovereignty, legitimate plans from our government um, on a federal as well as a provincial level. And maybe could you just explain for anybody listening who isn't familiar, um, can you explain what is meant by the term climate capitalism? So climate capitalism, I think, is kind of the way that capitalism exploits all the resources of our land and keeps on trying to grow, 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 and never stop. And this model is really detrimental for all our societies and our futures, because if we don't stop at some point, we're not going to have a future to live in. And, you know, that's why we engage in these strikes, to make people realize and, like, see our faces, see that we are youth and we are scared and we need um, adults and everyone to do more and to act more to stop this kind of um, extractivism that keeps on going because of our capitalism, uh, capitalist society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and capitalism, um, just for people who aren't totally familiar with it, is, a, is an economic system that essentially separates the workers from the means of production. Um, and it also puts an emphasis on valuing profit and labor, um, a means of producing profit, um, therefore giving us concepts like GDP, gross domestic product, uh, which uh, when talking about capitalism, capitalists will often cite GDP as a measure of how successful capitalism is and how it benefits us and our economy. But GDP is not a measure of how successful our economy is. It's more a measure of how many workers were successfully exploited. Um, what instead should be measured is GPI, which is Genuine Progress Indicator. Uh, this is a way of measuring economic growth that takes into account both social and environmental factors based on sustainable income frameworks. So someone could say our GDP is up 10% this year, isn't that amazing? And they could be absolutely uh, correct, but our GPI only went up 1%. So there's a lot left to be desired by GDP. 
This idea was originally uh, brought forth by economist John Hicks. And what I'm really trying to highlight here is that capitalism doesn't breed innovation or success. It breeds a warping of values. Um, workers are taught through culture that, for example, hard work pays off, a career is the main part of your life, a good job is the end goal, etc. Uh, really, the only reason these concepts exist is to, at the end of the day, profit those on top. So if we live in a world like this, of course our land is going to be destroyed. We're no longer valuing life or sustainability or human beings, just profit. And if people are readily exploited for profit, naturally the earth will be too. Um, if leaders are motivated by what will make them conventionally successful, then of course they won't take the necessary action because the necessary action will harm them in the short term and potentially the long term as well. So my point is that climate crisis is a systemic issue and the system is capitalism. What would need to happen in order for society to move towards GPI rather than GDP, do you think? What, what would the vision be there and how would striking play a part in that? I believe that a way for a society, a global society, to move towards uh, having a framework that is moving away from capitalist values like GDP and going more towards uh, values that are uh, outlined by GPI um, would require essentially a revolution. Um, but I think that where we're going right now with striking is exactly what's necessary and what is needed. What is needed is for the people, for the public, for the masses to become educated enough to realize exactly what is happening, that they are in fact being exploited, that the system does not benefit them or anyone else. And then from that education and that realization, then we will get angry. We will realize that this needs to change now and drastically. And so really the first step is education and we're already striking and we're already educating other people. So I think we're well on the way. For that shift. Did you want to add anything to that, Chloe? Uh, sure. Striking is already a pushback to the capitalist system that we have, and it's really inspiring to see all these really young people. We see like elementary school kids showing up to our strikes, and people are really starting young, so I have a lot of hope that we'll be able to move forward, especially with this new youth climate justice movement that's happening. Um, and I'm really happy to see that people are already um, even at very young ages, realizing that we have a lot of power when we mobilize together and we can actually demand real change. You both recently wrote a piece for Spring Magazine talking about climate colonialism. Can you explain what climate colonialism is and how the climate crisis is rooted in colonialism? So engaging in climate justice means we have to recognize the fact that the folks who are most impacted by the effects of climate change are largely marginalized peoples or MAPA folks. MAPA stands for most affected peoples and areas. Um, and in the specific context of Canada, we see the Canadian state and corporations taking indigenous land, extracting their resources, polluting their environment. And um, we have land defenders right now out on Wet'suwet'en territory. They're being brutalized. They're being arrested, medical supplies are being blocked um, from them by the Canadian state, all in the name of extractivism so that we can take more oil from the ground and continue to pollute their environment. Um, so yeah, there's a clear connection between um, the climate crisis and indigenous issues for sure. But I also wanna make sure that um, 
we have to recognize as environmental activists that environmental activism itself and the movement has perpetuated colonialism in the past. And um, in the earlier days of the environmental movement, there was a huge focus on conservation and keeping like specific areas of land protected. And of course, conservation is really important for biodiversity and all that, but there wasn't any regard for the indigenous peoples whose land that was. Um, and, you know, maybe it was framed a bit nicer, but at the end of the day, it was still colonialism. It was still taking land. It wasn't under the uh, mask of um, of extracting resources and, and um, for those really negative purposes, but ultimately it still contributed to colonialism and it wasn't a step forward. So we as settlers in the climate justice movement, we have to recognize those harms and ensure that our organizing doesn't continue to perpetuate colonialism. Mm -hmm. Going along that vein, um, just colonialism is fundamentally about viewing land as an asset and perpetuating white supremacy. Um, so this capitalist idea that I mentioned before, that land, other animals, and plants are not somehow, are, um, or are somehow below human beings, but also an asset, fuels the idea that the earth is good for money and nothing else. So the land and creatures are here to serve us great humans, which leads to us destroying ourselves because we've become lost in the false um, reality that uh, capitalism and colonialism breeds quote-unquote success. Uh, so when we kill the forests, we're killing our brothers and sisters, and when we exploit the other animals, we are destroying ourselves, um, essentially. Land is not something to own, it's not something to buy or sell. Land is the Earth's living, breathing skin that works in harmony to sustain everything on it, including ourselves. And our fault as humans is ego. Um, what we need is a global shift in worldview to, like an indigenous culture, is view humans, plants, animals, and everything in between as an equal circle. So all of us are working to sustain each other. If the circle is broken, we die, all of us die. And that's what's been happening for the past several hundred years is that our circle is broken. Can you talk about how indigenous sovereignty would play into climate justice and anti-capitalist movements? So that actually reminds me of one of the pillars that Fridays for Future Toronto bases our work on, which is Indigenous self-determination. And we've been calling for Indigenous voices to be centered, not just in terms of climate, but also in like all other aspects of social and economic decision making. And in my opinion, that's the difference between a climate movement and a climate justice movement. Because a climate justice movement would be fighting in solidarity with Indigenous folks, making sure we're standing with them in all their activism. And this means standing with them in all their activism, not just when our interests overlap. So for us, even when Indigenous folks are fighting for a cause that is unrelated to climate change, we do have a responsibility to stand with them and put organizing capacity um, behind their causes. And this goes for any anti-capitalist movement. We have to think really critically about when we choose to be in solidarity with Indigenous folks. Are we only doing it when it's convenient for us or when it looks good? Because that would be tokenism and we definitely need to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I mentioned in my previous answer, indigenous cultures often view the earth and everything on it as a circle. Um, and I'm very fond of this framework. Uh, indigenous peoples are not at fault for what's happening. In fact, they are the key to fighting this crisis. And um, we as colonizers have lost our way. Indigenous peoples not only have a much deeper understanding of the world around us, but they are the original inhabitants and caretakers of this land. Um, they are not only owed their rightful place, but it is entirely necessary for them to lead the way in this fight. 
um, they have the knowledge, they have the power, and we as non-indigenous peoples, like Chloe said, uh, really need to listen and follow them, and it is absolutely crucial that we do so immediately. So this year, Canada saw one of the worst heat waves in British Columbia. We had a lot of wildfires, and the ocean was literally on fire this year. Sometimes, um, like you had mentioned, Chloe, it seems like the planet is doomed. At the same time, there were countless organizations, youths out on the street marching for a robust climate plan. With these two realities between us, what do you think of the possibilities of the climate movement? Personally, I'm feeling really hopeful that there is a lot of youth activism and energy, but uh, I am angry by the lack of response by the government and the amount of tokenism that we have to experience as youth activists. Uh, we want adult allies and our leaders to join us, not just compliment us and say, oh, like, good for you, you're doing great things, but then turn their backs and put in some really devastating climate policies. Yeah, I think uh, with these two stark realities uh, very active and present, it's difficult uh, not to acknowledge that the people who are currently resistant to the necessary change uh, won't budge. Uh, the naysayers who honestly and truly have their anti-climate beliefs, pro-capitalist beliefs, cemented in their minds aren't going to be won over by us, and I think it's important to remember that so we don't waste our energy on them. These people, for the most part, are old white men, and you know what? Most of them are going to die soon. That sounds kind of bleak, but it is a crucial part of societal change, which is a demographic shift. And that's what's happening right now. The demographic is shifting. Uh, the planet is being killed, and we are rising to the streets to show the people in power who are set in the past uh, that we need this now um, because it is the present and it is the future. This movement has been evolving into a living conglomerate of all the injustices that have been forced on us due to colonialism, capitalism, and ego, and I think it's incredibly beautiful the way the climate justice movement is becoming stronger and more intricate, and it's absolutely what's necessary. Uh, the possibilities are endless, and I'm optimistic that we will end up on top. Could you both maybe speak also to what would be the cause of the resistance to change from political leaders? Um, what would be behind that? Um, I, the direction I usually like to go in with this one is uh, the resistance to, just as a general sort of vein running in most people, is uh, is fear. Uh, that's why I really advocate for extending and practicing empathy with other people no matter how strong or hateful they may seem because really the root cause of, uh, of, of any kind of hate and any kind of anger is genuinely fear. So most people really believe when they're anti-climate movement that uh, the climate movement really genuinely threatens them. It really threatens them, it threatens their family, it threatens their way of life. And so they are really genuinely afraid of the change happening because to them it feels like it is targeting them and other people like them. So, um, so it comes from a sort of human instinct to protect yourself and protect the, your way of life. So I think really the most important and crucial way to, uh, to fight this, to combat this, is extending empathy and trying to approach things not from a logical point of view, not from an emotional point of view, but from a person-to-person -person point of view. 
And I know that often, especially marginalized communities, it can feel a lot easier to work within the systems that we're in right now. I know, um, you know, my parents, they're immigrants, and it's always just been about working, kind of keeping your head down, trying to fit into society and just um, follow the status quo so that you can make a better life for your kids. And we have to validate those feelings, of course, under these systems. It definitely feels like the only way to go is to work within it and try to play by the rules. And that's why we need a really strong movement. That's why we need solidarity, because if we all band together and we're all united, then it gets a lot easier to oppose the system. Can you talk about your expectations from world leaders? In the most recent Canadian election, climate justice was a major electoral issue. What did you think of the climate policies on the table? Did any of them meet your demands? Um, and do you have any hopes from politicians in solving the climate crisis? I personally want to see our politicians falling through with all their promises to support Indigenous communities. A lot of those promises have not been kept over the past few years. Um, so I would want them to implement all the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls for justice from the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, in terms of specific bills, I'm especially keeping an eye on Bill 230, which is looking to address environmental racism in Canada. I'm really glad that this conversation that connects um, racial justice and climate justice is taking place on this federal level. Um, and I'm hoping that this will mean that we can get some more climate justice policies on the table eventually. And in terms of whether or not the uh, policies we see are reflective of our demands, that has yet to be seen. I don't really want to take the politicians by their word. I would want to see what they actually do. And once we see their actions, then we can determine if it's in line with our demands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't exactly call climate justice a major electoral issue. Climate justice related buzzwords were just sort of thrown around to make it seem like they cared and were being bold. Um, the reality is it's all just greenwashed fluff and haphazard policies that not only don't address the root cause of the issue, but barely even address the top layers of the issue either. Um, yes, there was a lot of talk surrounding climate change, but I think that's all it was. It was just talk. The climate policies on the table are quite honestly pathetic, and I can't address any policies or party platforms specifically at the risk of being partisan, but I think it's fair to say none of them come close to reaching the standards necessary, and as far as having hope in politicians, that definitely died a long time ago. I have no faith in the integrity of people who already value money over uh, human beings, and uh, as I believe I said in the article that I, I co-wrote with Chloe, politicians will never dismantle the very system that benefits them. I do, however, have much hope and faith in the people, and I believe power comes from the bottom up. And I, if we, we the people can't corner the politicians into doing the right thing, then I have you know, the utmost faith, faith in us for our collective ability to change things at a large scale. Okay. The UN just hosted its 26th Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. What were your thoughts about the conversations and resistance surrounding COP26? Um, I want to say foremost that I am beyond proud of all of my fellow activists who spoke out about COP26's issues while attending to observe. Um, many of them experienced discrimination on top of having to in-person live observe how weak the so-called bold policies and plans are. 
I think COP26 did in fact do a good job at highlighting the paths uh, nations and leaders could potentially take to be climate leaders. However, it seems nobody is so inclined to do so. So it's important to remember that at this point, the UN climate conferences are pretty much uh, only intended to amplify and move and refine the frameworks put in place six years ago at COP21 in Paris. But the Paris Agreement is really the bare minimum, and our leaders, if you recall, even went back to edit what they agreed on, namely raising the crucial 1.5 degrees Celsius to ideally below 2 degrees Celsius, which, by the way, would be catastrophic. Um, I'm definitely glad COP26 prompted more conversations surrounding the climate crisis and once again brought it to the surface of public discourse. But it just showed us once again that even when our leaders are attempting to appease us with climate-centered groups and plans, they still can't grasp the magnitude of their mistakes. I'm sure anyone who's active in climate uh, justice activism will agree with me that it, it gets exhausting. Um, if, any, if anything, I think COP26 was just uh, motivation to go in harder. COP26 was a huge mess in my opinion. We had representatives from some of the biggest polluters in the fossil fuel industry in meetings and COP26 was just kind of like accommodating them. And it was announced that those representatives would have a lesson role this year. But uh, of course, that was thanks to a lot of amazing activism, including by the folks at Polluters Out. So I want to give them a shout out. Um, but I want to know what the purpose is of having these executives in a climate change conference. And not only that, but we're still in a global pandemic and many nations don't have the same access to vaccines that we do up in uh, up in Canada. So it's really unfair to be excluding certain people from the conversation just because they come from a more marginalized country. And it's also important to note that the countries that don't have um, as much access to vaccines are the same countries that are most marginalized and most exploited, feeling the effects of climate change the most. So if anything, they should have a seat at that table, not those uh, fossil fuel industry executives. Absolutely. What role do you think Canada can play to be a global climate leader? Canada is a huge emitter and we have a lot of consumerism. We've been polluting the earth a lot longer than other countries and our actions are driving the climate crisis, causing a lot of catastrophe in all areas of the world. So Canada really has the responsibility to right this injustice and address the climate crisis head on. So I believe that Canada needs to reduce our emissions and not just rely on offsets. I know that a lot of global North countries love just giving money to the global South nations and telling them, oh, like, can you reduce your emissions so that we can emit a bit more? But that's not going to cut it. And that's also not ethical considering our history of uh, polluting the earth. So I think that Canada has a lot more to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Canada's role should be to be an exemplar, um, to work hard at closing the wealth gap, which is a proxy for how much capitalism is exploiting the land and people. Other, na other nations should see us as a non-hypocritical example. I believe that so-called Canada should swallow its pride and start fulfilling its reputation. Canadians seem to think that we're oh so much better than the United States um, because A, B, and C. But the reality is we've let this delusion stop us from making significant progress. I want to see Canada leading the way in Indigenous sovereignty and reconciliation by listening to Indigenous voices and maybe not destroying their land with industry. I want to see Canada employing legitimate realistic transition plans for fossil fuel workers, and I want to see Canada defunding the police and addressing the blaring racism problem policing has. Canada needs to stop being the surface-level paradise that we've been taught it is and start being a legitimate leader in action and change. As climate 
activists. How do you practice self-care? How important is it to keep your cup full while doing this work? Burnout is something that everyone in the climate justice movement experiences. So self-care is like the most important thing to make sure that we're not, um, that we're able to put our full effort into our activism and that we're not having to, you know, like uh, burn out and then have to stop our activism. So for me, I think the way that I do self-care, it's just, I just like to curl up with a cup of tea. I like English breakfast um, or some traditional Chinese teas. I honestly need to learn better uh, ways to do self-care because I feel like I don't have enough methods. I personally like to have an outlet for that climate anxiety because when things are happening all over, you see the news, you see the articles, and you're someone who's working within the climate justice uh, activism sort of circle, um, it can feel very, very claustrophobic. Um, so sometimes I feel it's best to take a step away from social media. Um, I, I've stopped using social media um, at certain points uh, in the past year for like a few weeks at a time and instead focusing on uh, my own spiritual practices, uh, including some like physical stuff like yoga um, to sort of ground myself into the earth and stop having sort of outside uh, stimuli sort of mess up my general vibe. Could you maybe talk about how joining an organization like Fridays for Future um, in itself could be a form of self-care because of the community that you would find um, in joining such an organization? Oh, 100%. Like the amount of climate anxiety that I was experiencing before joining this group compared to now, it's, it's so much better. I feel like before I was feeling like there's nothing we can do and that our lives, our futures are in the hands of these government powers that I can't influence at all. Um, but since joining the organization, I really feel so, um, I just feel so good about how things are going. I mean, not that great because, you know, we still have a, a climate catastrophe on our hands, but I feel good about the amount of people that are so committed to this work and the adult allies we've met that really want to help us secure our futures. And um, having such a nice community of people that, you know, all kind of, we have similar um, thoughts and motivations. It's really nice to, to have those types of friends in my life. So I have so appreciated organizing and I recommend it to anyone who's feeling a little dejected. Just see what your local organizations are doing because it feels, it feels much better to vent about those problems with someone who thinks like you do. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, really, really important. Uh, I feel like, like, like Chloe said, as an individual can feel suffocating um, and that individuals can have a very hard time. It just sort of feels like if you have anxiety, then it just goes everywhere. Um, but sort of channeling that anger or that fear into an organization like Fridays for Future can be very, very helpful, can be very, very therapeutic. Um, on a personal level and also on a group level and like I said I take a step away from social media but on the flip side uh, social media can also be an excellent platform for uh, seeing who else like you around the world is doing similar things what's happening how you can aid people talk to other people um, really making connections is what it's all about and um, and I think that empathy is important to combat people who disagree with the climate crisis or the climate change movement, but also empathy is important just on a personal level with connecting people uh, within the climate justice movement. 
Thank you both for sharing. What actions would you suggest to our listeners who want to get more involved in the climate movement or maybe some advice you could give to somebody that wants to join an organization involved in climate change but is is feeling um, a little bit um, hesitant or afraid to to make that move? Well, a really big campaign that's happening now that I think it would be amazing to get more folks involved in is Shut Down Canada. So this is an initiative that uh, is started in response to calls from um, Indigenous organizers, people on the front lines in the Wet'suwet'en territory defending their land, asking people to set up protests all around the nation to try to get people's attention about what is happening on the Wet'suwet'en with the coastal gas link pipeline uh, and the RCMP brutalizing the indigenous folks for trying to protect their land. So I would highly recommend that you look um, you look online to find a Shutdown Canada action that's near you and you join that. Um, I would also want to highlight a really cool campaign that's happening, which is the banking campaign. So we want to expose the um, the amount of money that our big five banks in Canada are putting into the fossil fuel industry and projects that directly harm Indigenous people. So if you want to learn more about that, you can actually check out Banking on a Better Futures website or Climate Pledge Collective's website where they have some more information. And I would encourage you to go out and talk to your bank advisors, talk to your financial advisor, um, tell them what you're feeling and that you're disappointed in their investments and see if they would be willing to talk to their management and we can get somewhere from there. Um, if you are a youth in Toronto and you want to get involved with our organization, you can join us um, on Instagram. We're just at Fridays for Future TO. And there's a link in our bio where you can sign up and it would be amazing to start organizing with some of you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's important to remember that as individuals, no one of us is guilty of causing the climate crisis. Um, we are here because of the grossly wealthy, the billionaire industries built on exploitation, and of course, the structurally oligarchic society. Um, however, uh, you can make a difference on an individual level. So if you're not very into perhaps joining campaigns or if you're someone in an at-risk marginalized group who feels that it would be personally too uh, risky for you to do such actions, uh, you can make individual life changes. So the first thing I would recommend um, as a lifestyle change would be to stop eating seafood. Uh, the seafood industry is actively killing our oceans and fueling the plastic industry. Uh, the oceans are the earth's heart and lungs, and so as soon as the oceans die, we die, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, I would also suggest looking into veganism as a lifestyle if that's something that's possible for you. Um, I would also suggest to research fast fashion um, and look into buying more local clothes, more thrifted, second-hand clothing, and really any local... Uh, anything if you're going to be buying things buying local is really a, a really great choice for sustainability um, I also think it's important to remember that simply being well versed on climate justice and current related issues and talking about them practicing empathy with others it makes an astronomical difference I think that really like one of the biggest things you can do is just educate yourself and educate people around you um, never underestimate yourself well, thank you both so much for making the time to be here. It was a great pleasure to talk with you, and um, I think this is going to be very valuable to our listeners. So thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to the Spring Podcast. Our researcher is Sarah Saheed, and our audio engineer is Brian the Vinayaham. To learn more about Spring, please visit our website at springmag.ca. We welcome your feedback. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, you can send us an email at info at springmag.ca.